Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Fascinating guest this week, as always, Paul Gilmartin, the host of uh, the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast. Uh, we get into some really, really interesting, uh, gritty areas. And speaking of that, I want to just issue a little disclaimer at the top here. Um, some of this stuff is is quite gritty. Um, I think very brave, but quite gritty. And I so I just want to warn you in advance that he, uh, that if you're feeling sensitive today, it may be uh, not the best thing for you uh, because he talks a lot about his own personal struggles with mental illness and and abuse. And if you're listening to this with little kids in the vehicle or in the space, then you maybe uh, uh, go to another episode just for now. But it's it's great and powerful stuff. Uh, Paul Gilmartin is coming up. But first, a uh, quick item of business and uh, and your voicemails. The business item is uh, that we're hiring, not, not here at the podcast, um, but at the 10% Happier uh, app company, we're hiring. Um, if you uh, if you like what we do, we are actually looking for a software developer, a digital marketer, and some content producers at our offices in Boston. So you can learn more at jobs.10percenthappier.com. Jobs.10percenthappier.com. All right, uh, let's do some phone calls. I uh, here's my usual caveat, which is uh, you may be tired of me saying this, but I feel compelled to say it anyway. I'm not a meditation teacher; just a reporter who writes about meditation and does some meditation. I'm not a mental health expert. I answer these uh, questions on on the voicemails to the best of my ability. I have not heard them in, in advance, so I reserve the right to be completely wrong. Uh, here's uh, voicemail number one. Hi, Dan. I just finished listening to your uh, TM episode with Bob Roth, and I really, really dug it. I've been skeptical about it forever. I've been doing mindfulness meditation for a long time now. And, and after listening to that podcast, I feel ready to, to try it and to, to go forward with it. Um, I also was really blown away that you had said that you were ready for this. Um, and so that was, that was, that was big too. I want to know if you've done it and I want to know how it went and I want to know if you learned from Bob Roth and just to drop it like that saying, hey, I'm going to learn it from you when you're the one of the biggest skeptics I know about all of this also. Um, I, I need I need answers to those questions. So I hope the TML, TM experience went really well. Um, how that went with you could really impact a lot of us out there that are looking to broaden our meditation practice. So I hope you get around to this one. Thank you. This is Francie Cashman. I also follow you on Twitter. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Frankie. Appreciate it. Uh, bad news is I, I've done nothing. I'm a horrible, lazy person. Um, well, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm horribly overscheduled is really the problem. Um, I haven't done anything, but I'm still in touch with Bob. We email not infrequently, and I will do it. Um, uh, I'm very interested in trying it. I am um, – I'm not – I'm not uh, – Skeptical of the practice, I mean, the the he, he might quibble with what I'm about to say, but basically the TM practice is also known as Vedic meditation where you use a mantra. It's been around for like 3,000 years, maybe more. Uh, so I'm not super skeptical that – and there's some science that suggests 
uh, it's really good for you. So uh, I'm not super skeptical of the practice. As you may have heard in the podcast with Bob Roth, who's the head of the David Lynch Foundation and also a very high-ranking official within the Transcendental uh, Meditation Organization, um, I do have some questions about the organization um, and uh, the founder, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who made some kind of interesting claims. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I like Bob personally, um, and uh, um, I'd be happy to go learn from him, and I retain the right to uh, to to retain my skepticism on various aspects. But, again, I really do think I, – I've seen no evidence to suggest that the, 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 that the practice – is not a healthy one, and and a significant amount of of evidence to suggest it is a healthy one. So I'm glad you're checking it out, and and you know my view basically on meditation is that that while I, you know, it's easy to fall into kind of sectarian ruts, but but you know I'm I'm pro meditation generally. I do happen to practice Buddhist meditation, or you know at times what might be referred to as secular mindful meditation, which is derived from Buddhism, but is stripped of the sort of metaphysical stuff. Um, I do I do the Buddhist variety, although I am agnostic on all the metaphysical claims. I've seen no evidence personally for reincarnation, et cetera, et cetera. But but just because I I am a Buddhist, it doesn't mean I, I doesn't mean I'm super like dogmatic about you know that's the only kind of meditation you should do. I think what we know now is that the mind is trainable. That's the big deal. The mind is trainable. And there are lots of ways to do that, lots of kinds of meditation. And so I think you should sniff around, find the one that's best for you, and give that a shot. And then over time, once you have a grounding in one kind of meditation, well, then I think that it might make sense to kind of uh, uh, do a little broadening. And and, uh, you've got a firm foundation. You can then try to diversify your practice. So I said a lot without actually answer, you know, without giving you satisfaction on what you really wanted, which was what was it like for me when I got trained by Bob Roth. I haven't done that yet, but I, I know that I will at some point. All right. Call number two. Hey, Dan, this is uh, John calling from Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Uh, first and foremost, great job so far. You're doing amazing work. So I much appreciate it from, uh, from over here in Lebanon. Uh, my question for you is I find myself having an easier time being mindful and doing my meditation practice on the weekends when things are easy going and there's no work. I guess my question for you is, do you experience the same things when it's the weekend and you're not doing your day job? I know you're a busy man, but, uh, or do you have mechanisms in place to, to get you back into the zone when you are going through stress? Or I imagine when you come back through uh, or come back from a retreat, you're probably in a nice state of mind, but then the world, the real world happens, and then you you might feel anxious or or not in the present. So, do you have any ways to to get yourself back in the present moment when you are experiencing moments of stress, uh, specifically during the the work week and not during the easy moments in life, like the weekends and retreats and things like that? Thanks, Dan. Much appreciated, man. This is really important. You have put your finger on a really important thing. So I have a lot to say about this. Um, first of all, I don't. Uh, I, I work on the weekends. I, I uh, so for me, there's never a weekend because I work on Saturday and Sunday mornings doing weekend GMA here at ABC News. But also during the week, not only am I doing Nightline, I'm I'm also um, co-founder of this 10% Happier company. So I'm working all the time. Um, which uh, 
and I'm straying a little bit from what we really want to talk about here, but but I don't want to make that sound like I'm complaining. I'm I'm not actually. I love everything I do. I often describe it as drowning in chocolate, um, like because everything I'm working on is so exciting to me. Um, but there is certainly at times the aspect of drowning. So that's something I really kind of have to have, keep my eye on and make sure that I've got enough balance. Um, ongoing discussion, of course, with my wife and in my own head. Anyway, the, 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 what you put your finger on that is really important is that there are times when it seems like you have a quote unquote better meditation because for in your case, you're on, it's on the weekend for most people. It's the weekend. Uh, there's less going on. Um, and you're in a calmer state of mind. But that actually, in my view, is a bit of a misconception. That's why I said, quote, unquote, better. Because you've had an easier, calmer, less distracted sit, maybe maybe, and maybe even a more physically comfortable sit because you're less stressed and stress can show up in the body. That doesn't mean it's actually better um, in, my, in my view. In fact, there can be real value, in my opinion, and in my experience, to the sits that we think were tough or, um, you know, where you're totally distracted because so, you've just come out of a busy meeting or you've just finished a busy day or you're heading into a busy day and you're just ambushed by all these thoughts about, of anger over what was said or what was not said, planning for what you have to do, um, uh, rumination over things you maybe did poorly, blah, 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 blah. That is like actually, if you think about it like exercise, that's like a really tough workout. You know, and um, instead of, you know, pedaling through the countryside at a leisurely pace, that's like, um, you know, going to Barry's boot camp or CrossFit where you're getting your butt kicked. Um, and that's training for life where anything can happen at any time. And we are not control. We are we are not in control. We're living in a universe that, as I often say, is characterized by impermanence and entropy. And um, we need that training to be, you know, uh, supple in the face of of how unpredictable our minds are and how unpredictable the exterior world is, which, of course, is all refracted through the lens of our mind anyway. Um, so I wouldn't get too hung up on this. I, and, and by the way, I do it, too. So no judgment here. But so I, I my advice is I wouldn't get too hung up on um uh, on what you perceive to be a good sit versus a bad sit, do it consistently on all days of the week, if if you can, or most days of the week, so that you're training in the calm times and in uh, the the less than calm times. All of what's the point here? The point is not to, as Sharon Salzberg, the master meditation teacher, has said, the point of meditation is not to become some great meditator. The point is to become better at life. So. Yeah, I think it's really important what you've zeroed in on there, and hopefully that hopefully I've given you a useful reframing. And I know I said this at the beginning, but you know, just bear in mind that th these are better questions. These are questions that are I I'm stealing wisdom from people who really do know what they're talking about. But I I hope I'm stating it correctly, and I'm really speaking person from my own experience here. Um, 
but if if you have access to great meditation teachers wherever you live, or if you're on the Ten Percent Happier app, and you can talk to one of our coaches who are much more experienced meditators than me, that those are the, those are even better people to put the question to. But but again, I think the uh, the right way to think about meditation is don't get so focused on trying to reach some special state. Just get better and better and better as as you will inevitably through the practice at seeing clearly whatever you're feeling right now so that your feelings generally don't yank you around like a malevolent puppeteer. All right. Let's get to our guest this week. Uh, or just just such a uh, great guy. Paul Gilmartin. Um, he's a stand-up comedian. Uh, he was, uh, you may have seen him for a long time. He was a host of a, a hit show on TBS called Dinner in a Movie. Um, but he has, for a long time, struggled with mental illness. I mean, really serious struggles and you're, you're going to hear him talk about it and he's decided in recent years to kind of make that the focus of his professional life so he he's still funny but uh, and he's very funny in in the context i'm about to discuss which is that he, he started a podcast called the mental illness happy hour where it's totally cool to talk about all of this mental illness of all flavors and all varieties and and it's not pretty but it also can be funny I mean, it also, of course, is really sad and frustrating and poignant, and uh, Paul does it all. Uh, he is, of course, a meditator as well, and he's lots of stories about um, how that has and has not worked for him. So here he is, Paul Gilmartin. How, when, and why did you start meditating? I first started uh, meditating about, I want to say about seven years ago. There was a woman in my support group who was a hot mess. Wait, hold on a second. Support group for what? for addiction. All right. I'm going to call in an audible here. Let's detour into that for just a moment before we get to the meditation. Addiction to what? Uh, alcohol, drugs. And how? how uh, which drugs? Uh, mostly weed and then beer and wine. Those were my things. But I was kind of a garbage can. I would, I would do, you know, if somebody had mushrooms or Coke or whatever, I would do them. But I didn't seek any of that stuff out. That's interesting to me as a f- former abuser of cocaine so you could casually do cocaine but not yeah. chase it yeah wow yeah everybody's uh, brain is different it, it it's interesting uppers have uh, never really been my thing and uh i you know to take another detour after battling uh treatment resistant depression for um since essentially 1999 uh my psychiatrist recommended Adderall and being a recovering addict I thought no way and uh, then I met somebody in my support group who had been sober as long as I had and she said you know I was skeptical but I tried it and I didn't because it wasn't her drug of choice she said I have no desire to abuse it and it has been a game changer and so I tried Adderall and it has been a game changer really because I've been tempted to abuse Adderall yeah so it just speaks to different proclivities I think so I think so we should define what I can you tell tell people what Adderall is yeah Adderall is speed essentially it's a methamphetamine um and it uh it 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 helps me with that feeling I used to get every day uh, after being up for about four hours that I had to lay down because the world was just too much. And, um, yeah, it's uh, I'm more productive. Uh, I'm, I'm on like a medium dose of it. I, 
Uh, but it's normally prescribed not for depression, but for ADD, right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, they've discovered that it can help with treatment-resistant depression. So um, I'm so glad I I gave it a shot because it's um, yeah, depression is it can be so so tenacious and um, yeah, no question. So we're deeply embedded in a tertiary um, tributary here. I've got a uh, flow chart. Okay, so let's disembed from this third one, which was about uppers, and back to the, the secondary uh, detour, which was about um, your addiction. Um, addiction. So how long had that been going on? Mm, I mean, I started uh, smoking pot and drinking when I was about 14, uh, but I was a pretty high-functioning um, drug addict, alcoholic, uh, for instance, uh, I didn't drink during the day. I There were many nights I could have <clears throat> two or three drinks and be okay, but it progressed. As I got into my 30s, I began um, not knowing what was going to happen if I drank. I might be fine or I might be driving home with one eye closed because I'm seeing double. And I never, I've never had a DUI. I've never lost a job because of it. I didn't lose any of the external stuff, but my bottom was really an internal, um, emotional bottom where I was thinking about suicide 50 times a day. And this was at the, in the middle of doing, um, a 16 year run on a TV show. And, uh, you know, it was, it was going great. Uh, I was making more money than I ever had. What was the show? Uh, dinner and a movie. It was a, um, a show on TBS from 95 to 2011. And essentially the show was we would uh, show a movie and then you would see us in the break right before the commercial for two minutes, you know, maybe six times throughout the movie. And we would doing, be doing the steps of a recipe themed around the movie we would be showing. And, you know, we'd crack jokes and give cooking tips and talk about the movie. And, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was really kind of in many ways a dream gig, but my depression was being exacerbated so much by um, the alcohol abuse that it it was um, smiling for, you know, a full day on camera uh, and it was mostly improvised, so I really had to kind of be focused. It was like, felt like lifting 500 pounds uh-huh. to me. Uh, and as soon as they would yell, cut, my face would drop. And um, it it was just, so much of my life was filled with a dread of facing the day. So getting sober uh, in uh, 2003, um, honestly, because I thought I was going to kill myself if I, if I didn't. Uh, that gave my meds a chance to start to work. And so they did, but there was always kind of this last 75, uh, this last 25% that I couldn't seem to get over. Um, and that's kind of where the, the Adderall helped. That's where the meditation helped. Um, it's where going to another support group for intimacy issues um, helped. So uh, it's... There's so many things that I that I have in my regimen to be functional and at peace, um, but because I'm used to to doing them, it's I don't even think about it anymore. It's just a part of my routine. That's a healthy habit. So 
um, almost by definition. Uh, so you've gotten us very smoothly back to square one in the story. So you're you're saying seven years ago there was a woman in your support group who was a hot mess. Who a hot mess, yes. And talking a mile a minute, kind of uh, just wound up. And which support group was this? The, this the was one, not- the one for uh, uh, drugs and alcohol. Okay, so not the intimacy one. No. Okay. And she came in one day, and she was a different person. And she was so much more chill. And and I said, you seem different. And she said, I started meditating. And I said, how, do, how, how did you learn how to do that? And she said, well, the type of meditation I learned how to do is transcendental meditation. And she got really into it, and she became a teacher. And... And I said, can you teach me? And so she did. And I told her, I'm really skeptical um, because in transcendental meditation, there's some ceremony involved in the first time they teach you how to do it. And I just like I've always recoiled at, you know, the anything remotely new ag you know somebody mentions mother earth and i'm out of there <laughs> you know they start overusing the word sacred and i just shut down yeah, yeah. there was a tiny how do you bit... deal with finger symbols say that again how do you deal with finger symbols you like those uh i i i don't understand dream catchers um uh uh, uh didgeridoo music any of that work for you oh didgeridoo oh my god actually i don't mind the the, the didgeridoo <laughs> but the you know the classic kind of sonoma uh, you know the guru sedona yes in a row yes. um i don't know it's just a little too precious for I, me. No, I hear you i hear yeah. you um so anyway, the TM, it did or did not work? Not it with... did work. Okay. And she said, uh, I recommend you do it two times a day, uh, 20 minutes each time. Find a quiet place. You know, take your phone out of your pocket, your keys, your wallet. Um, sit down, close your eyes. And she gave me a mantra, which is part of Transcendental Meditation. And you just uh, repeat the mantra in your mind. Uh, or you could say it out loud if you wanted as well. And it's uh, it's a phrase that has no meaning. Um, and that's the point of it, is that it disengages your brain from uh, thinking about your day, thinking about, you know, whatever it is. And I I think it was the third day I was doing it, um, it was after my afternoon session. I went to go wash the dishes. And up until then, any kind of household chore had always felt like the 60 minutes clock was going in my head. Like, like these were things that were in the way of my life. And I had to plow through these to get to the point, the good parts of my life. And I suddenly felt so relaxed and present that I realized that doing the dishes were a part of my life and there's no reason why I can't give it my full attention and try to find something pleasurable in doing it. And I swear to you, Dan, it felt as I was washing the dishes, and maybe it was just because I slowed down, but it felt like my arms were moving through water, mm. just like this 
like this flow and i went wow something is working this is not a bunch of a bunch of bs and i i i became sold on it now i don't do the afternoon one anymore i slowly got away from that and i wish i could uh get back to doing it but i have been unable to get back to that second meditation but uh i meditate every morning after i shower and it there's a lot of days honestly it's 20 minutes of me thinking about myself with my eyes closed um <laughs> uh, but one of the things she stressed is there's no bad meditation. We've had on the show um, a Bob Roth, who's the head of the David Lynch Foundation, longtime transcendental mm-hmm. meditation teacher, 50 years, I think, something like that. Wow. But he says, even in a shallow dive, you get wet. I love that. What would you say in the simplest possible terms for somebody who's got a long history of dealing with depression is the utility of transcendental meditation for you in 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 the context of of this overwhelming depression one of the side effects of depression for me and a lot of people i know is the ruminating on i've got to get out of this depression and it almost creates a maybe the anxiety was there always along with it but there is often an anxiety to just facing the day because you've got this 50-pound backpack on your brain. And meditation has helped me let go of my ideas of how things should be and to kind of be more conscious about being in the present moment and just meeting it where it's at, you know, whether I just got in a car accident or, you know, a, you know, I had a fight with a friend. It, it helps me step outside of my brain instead of seeing all of my thoughts as fact and reality. And so I... It sounds kind of weird, but it has helped me not take what I'm feeling personally (laughs) and add too much of it, almost like a way of, instead of being in a traffic jam, being in the helicopter looking down at the traffic jam. Perfect. Yeah, it's perfect. Exactly. You're stepping out of the stream. You're stepping out of the story. And even if for a few nanoseconds at a time, to see it with some non-judgmental remove so that it doesn't own you. Yeah, uh, and you begin to realize when you experience those moments where um, the anxiety slips away, you begin to realize, oh, it's not I am anxious, it's I'm experiencing some anxiety, and it's something that is flowing through me, and uh, I can witness it and not judge it. Um, I can even self-reflect and say what might be causing this. But meditation is really good, uh, really helpful for me for distinguishing between self-obsession and self-reflection because the latter is super healthy and uh, the former is really destructive. Uh, You know, I had 
an epiphany a couple of years into sobriety that nothing degrades the quality of my life like obsessing about the quality of my life. (laughs) And meditation is so good about introducing yourself to what you're obsessing about because when you find your thoughts wandering and you you know part of the practice is bringing them back to either your breath or your mantra well if you notice 50 times in 20 minutes you're going to uh i've got to make the podcast more successful (laughs) you can't help but understand oh i'm feeling some anxiety about my podcast you know what might be the fear underneath it so it also helps me investigate what's going on inside me it serves so many different purposes well you you brought us to the podcast let's talk, let's talk about that i prefer not to talk about yeah, that i suspect that's not true the it's such an interesting show um, i don't want to describe it because i'm not going to do it justice can you just talk about the genesis uh, of the show and and what it's grown into um yeah, in, tw- in 2010, late 2020, uh, 2010, I went off my meds despite my psychiatrist um, <laughs> strongly urging me not to. And uh, I thought I was, you know, out of the woods, felt great. And then at about five months, the depression snuck back in, but I didn't see it for what it was. I thought, oh, my life really does suck. I will never be able to experience joy again because this is just who I am and I wanted to kill myself and then it occurred to me oh my god this is the depression and I thought I've been in therapy for years and years I've been in support groups I see a psychiatrist I believe mental illness is a real thing and I was fooled by it and I thought somebody has to talk about this in a way that is accessible because there was the kind of academic dry way that I didn't feel was accessible and then there was the kind of precious new agey way that turned me off and I thought what if you just talked about all the battles in our heads in a way that was raw uncensored just how two two close friends would would laugh and cry about how screwed up their their lives are that day or how screwed up they feel and because in support groups, I realized the power of hearing someone's story that you relate to is worth, you know, dozens of therapy sessions, um, dozens of books, uh, because it brought the thing that I needed most in my darkest hours, which was comfort and knowing that I'm not alone. And that helps with the anxiety. That helps build momentum for recovery. Um, And so that's what I tried to do with the podcast. And as, as it began growing, I realized, wow, the listeners have some really interesting stories as well. And I started recording listeners as well as, you know, friends of mine, fellow comedians, um, uh, therapists, um, authors. Uh, yeah, and so it's just kind of grown. So the, the podcast is half conversation, like I had with you. Uh, if you haven't listened to Dan's episode yet, it's, uh, it's great. Um, and the other half of the podcast is 
listener confessions, which I read, uh, they fill it out anonymously uh, via about a dozen surveys we have on the website. And I pick some surveys to read for each episode, and they're mind-blowing. They are. They are, I will say. I've been listening to them. Um, Tell me about the name. Uh, the mental illness happy hour, and and so you were trying to. That I wanted to find try a, to go ahead. Yes, I wanted to try to find a title that when people saw it they would go, "Oh, this is about the battle in our heads," but it doesn't take itself too seriously. <laughs> okay, right. You were trying to get that middle ground between yes. new agey and sterile. Yeah, and the logo. Um, also, I think gets that across. It's a '60s station wagon, and on the luggage rack is a gigantic prescription bottle. <laughs> so, so, because because it, it, when I first came across it, I thought maybe a little flip, um, mm-hmm. but then you listen to it, and it just oozes um, realness, you know. Thanks. And it, and I and I I listened to this, and I thought, oh. This is probably helping a lot of people. You know, it. it I don't want to toot my own horn, but I get really, really beautiful feedback from people um, who say that it, it, it helps them. And uh, which brings me to another topic, which is meaning and purpose, which has been every bit as important as, for me, meds. Exercise, support groups, meditation, boundaries. Um, there's there was a feeling I was always chasing when I was working um, as a stand-up comedian and a TV host that I would reach some level of money or fame where I would suddenly feel like okay, I can relax now and. I realized, now here's, a, here's a, a telling example of the way my brain works. I'd always, whenever I would drive down Sunset Boulevard, I would look at billboards of people on there and I would think they've made it. It's official. They're on a billboard on Sunset Boulevard. If I could just get my face on a billboard on Sunset Boulevard, then I would feel like, you know, it's official. I've I've made it because I would always say, well, my show is on basic cable. We show a movie, so you know, really, the movie is the the star. On and on and on, just ways to obsess about myself. But one year, the show took out a billboard on Sunset Boulevard, <laughs> and so I drove down to look at it, and I looked at it, and I lost respect for Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> it's like that Groucho Marx yes. joke. Yeah, I don't want to be a club of a member of any club that would have somebody like me as a member. Exactly. Much more of our conversation right after this quick break. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people 
with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. by Indeed, used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and start here. What you're describing is the... the it's like what the Buddha had in mind when he said, when he described suffering, that that suffering is, well, it's many things, but one of them is thinking that the thing you want is going to finally do it for you. Yep. Yep. And if I hadn't been forced to go to support groups to stay alive, I wouldn't have discovered the power of helping I wouldn't have discovered the power of being vulnerable, of asking for help, humbling myself. And I suddenly had a different perspective on my life because when I would help someone else who was just like me, I found the peace that I thought I was going to experience from business success and that was a that was a game changer for me um, so, so does that mean like you what does that mean you be, like become a monk or what, what, what's the logical extension of that no i stopped uh obsessing about um what i think my path needs to look like um how many Twitter followers I have or how often I'm going on an audition or how much I'm being paid. Uh, I, I surrendered to the fact that I can't control any of those things. I can do some footwork maybe to try to nudge them, but sitting and obsessing about that all day and being in a bad mood, you know, when I see somebody else, uh, having what I want is not making my life any better. So why don't I just do the things that bring me peace, 
and I discovered that when the dinner and movie got canceled in 2011, I had just started doing the podcast about six months earlier, and I thought, I really love doing the podcast, and I'm getting kind of tired of going on the road and doing stand-up and going on auditions for, for TV. I kind of feel like this podcast is where I'm supposed to be because I feel such meaning and purpose from it, and I have always believed or at least since I got sober, that when you feel peace, that is kind of a breadcrumb on the trail mm. to your most authentic self. Mm. And so I've just followed that. And sure enough, it I'm able to support myself now doing the podcast. And I feel like everything I've been through in my life that has been difficult has been necessary for me to be able to do this show which helps people and help really helps me so are you saying you no longer you're not saying that you no longer because you you said the opposite earlier <laughs> i i think you're not saying that you no longer obsess about your twitter followers or how your podcast is doing etc cetera, etc cetera, because you said earlier that sometimes not as much okay not as much right. as i used to obsess about my show business career you know, there's still those thoughts still come up, but now I'm able to be the helicopter looking down at them gotcha. and say, okay, I'm probably, there's probably some negative self belief going on here, which is that I'm not enough, um, that uh, I need to feel special to be safe. Um, and, and I know that those are all um, thoughts that have not worked in my in my favor you know what has worked in my favor is is this stuff that they teach you in meditation which is to be present um practice principles that you believe in and whatever the results are meet them with a reaction that is principled when you say doing the podcast helps you what do you mean by that exactly well, there was a thing that I went through uh, the second year of the podcast where I began to give weight to stuff that had happened to me as a, as a kid um, that I was finally able to call um, covert incest. Um, and it was uh, my relationship with my mom had always been enmeshed and I kind of knew that but my wife at the time ex-wife now would always say to me you haven't given weight to what happened to you you think you've dealt with the way your mom touches you talks to you looks at you um, but you haven't and when I was in the support group for intimacy I began to peel away layers of the onion. You know, one of the ways that I used to soothe myself, um, especially after I stopped drinking, was uh, pornography and video games. And when I started to cut back on those and unnumb myself, I began to give weight to what happened to me because I could feel in my body what I wouldn't allow myself to feel as a little boy because when you're stuck in a situation you will your brain will cope with whatever 
it needs to do to avoid the truth of I'm stuck in a house with a parent who is not safe, um, who is predatory towards my body. Um, the, the, she never touched my genitals, but there was um, a lot of really inappropriate you know i'll give you i'll give you one uh example um which is she took my my temperature rectally until i was eight years old and asked her why are we still doing it this way um there's a bunch of other examples and i could always explain away each one but in 2012 i looked at the pattern as a whole and i am getting back around to your question this actually all leads to it i had a meltdown when the truth of that finally hit me and I wanted to die and one of the things that abuse survivors struggle with is going back and forth in their mind about whether or not they're making too big of a deal of it mm. um, are I, the the things that my brain would tell me was you're a baby you're exaggerating and you're doing this for attention and then an hour later I would feel completely differently and it was a war going on in my brain trying to hold on to the image of my mom I had created to survive as a as a child so I began talking about this on the podcast and is she alive she is alive and, and she, she hear this yes she she um, I think in like 2014 or 15 I had cut contact with her because I just couldn't, I couldn't be in the same room with her. I couldn't bear to even be on the phone with her. And then I tried um, having a com a uh, communication through mail, but um, I asked for some boundaries to not be crossed, and she didn't respect them. And so I cut contact um, for good. And she did uh, find out that I was talking about it and I really agonized over whether or not I should talk about it and the thing that I ultimately decided was this is my story and the more people that stay quiet about their abuse because they don't want someone to be hurt the harder it is for them to heal and the harder it is for somebody out there who was in a similar situation and has yet to give weight to their experience, the harder it is for them to heal. And it was a tough decision, but I, I, thought, I thought it was the right thing to do. And I may regret it uh, later on, but she uh, was obviously upset um, but then I think it it sunk in, and she apologized, but it was also kind of not taking, really taking responsibility for it and kind of blaming it on her childhood. And I know her childhood, which was horrible, contributed to it, but I wasn't looking for a reason why she did it. I wanted her to empathize with me and to show some type of concern about how how might she 
help moving forward? How might she change in how she deals with me? And there wasn't any of that. You know, for instance, one day I had, I had told her, um, I know you want to be closer to me, um, but I don't feel safe around you. And she wasn't interested in wanting to know why. She didn't even ask any questions. She didn't say anything. She just kind of looked through me. And so those were the things. It's not because she did those things to me as a kid that I don't have contact with her. I have empathy for her. I I still love her, but I kind of look at it like a dog that bites. It's I, I love that dog. I wish it didn't bite, but I, I can't keep getting bitten. Um, so talking about all of this stuff on the podcast, I got so much support from listeners, from therapists, um, and it helped me let go of the shame. Um, it helped me own my story and go from feeling like a victim to a survivor. And here, here's, a, to me, a, a, a good example of how I feel about mothers who who do this to their to their kids um the term covert incest was was coined by um a therapist he wrote a book called uh, silently seduced which is an amazing amazing book and when he first started talking about this to his peers when he would be speaking there was a lot of pushback and like one woman you know shot up in the middle of his lecture and said, this is preposterous. And, um, but he just kept talking about it because he had so many clients who had experienced this kind of under the radar, um, emotional enmeshment and crossing of boundaries in the bathroom and no privacy and kid being naked for reasons that were really questionable over and over. And then there was a woman who stood up at one of his lectures and said, thank you, thank you, I'm putting my son in therapy tomorrow. That woman is a hero to me. And that is the attitude I have towards people who have done that, is it's not about labeling them as bad or evil. It's about what can we do to help this not happen again and for the people it's happened to, for them to heal. And so the podcast has helped me by helping other people heal. And the support I've gotten has helped me heal. Uh, a lot of moms who are listeners really, really helped me because they emailed me after I disclosed a lot of the things that I experienced. And they were like, that is not okay. And... And there was, you may have to edit this out because it's pretty harsh, but one mom <laughs> sent me an email that said, I want to kick your mom in the It While I don't want anybody to do that to my mom, I was moved by that protection that woman felt for that little boy that I was. And it made me realize that's the kind of protection a kid should have. He shouldn't be worried about defending himself. And the podcast helped me with all of that, as well as therapy and, and support groups. So, so 
given the weight and the the, the the seriousness of the issues that you're discussing on the show, even if you're trying to do it in a, in a way that sometimes has levity mm-hmm. to it, you know, would you ever get communications that, I mean, you must, I imagine this happens a lot where you feel like, oh, well, you actually need to maybe call the cops to to prevent somebody from hurting themselves or something like that? I, I have, they've been very few and far between um, because one of the things I've discovered is, are you talking about because somebody's suicidal or because they're abusing somebody? I meant more suicidality. Um, yes, and I always write and say, um, I am so sorry that you are feeling this way. Um, I am not a mental health professional, and this is way out of my capability. I urge you to call the suicide hotline or your therapist or a mental health professional, and this is, this is very serious. Um, please, please get help. So that's usually. And there's kind of two different categories. There's the people that are having suicidal ideation and the people who are like, you know, if things don't get better by Thursday, I'm going to put a gun in my mouth. And so um, I, I, I do what, what I'm capable of, which isn't that much, which is to say you're not alone. So many of us are, are um battling and you are not doomed if you can just get help and keep trying to get help um don't give up would you say that your struggles with it's anxiety and depression right Mm -hmm. would you say that those are the direct consequence of what happened in your childhood or congenital factors or a mix well I said to my psychiatrist one day, what exactly are the words for what I have? And he said, treatment-resistant depression due to childhood adversity. So he believes that's the case. Um, You know, I believe being an alcoholic, uh, which I believe genetically, uh, I, I believe I could have been raised in a perfect environment and I would probably still be, um, an addict of, of some sort. Um, but I think the intimacy issues definitely um, have contributed to the depression and, and the anxiety, and, and I believe that that is a result of the, the abuse. But um, who, who knows exactly where it is? Uh, you know, a, a, a lot of the literature and the studies show that people who have been, um, who have experienced incest have higher rates of depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, um, struggles with intimacy and um, addictions. Uh, and I have all of them. Right. I was going to just ask you, how do you explain, given that that potpourri that you just described, how did that lead you to comedy? How could it not? <laughs> Maybe that's it the healthiest. Yeah, the healthiest coping. It coping. was. It was how I survived as a kid. When, when I discovered the high of making people laugh. It was a way for me to be seen that was on my own terms because I wasn't seen as a kid. I was given attention, but it was it was unsafe attention from my mom. My dad was checked out. He just he was an alcoholic, high functioning, but he just wasn't he just wasn't present. Um, He was there physically. So I think 
inside I, I felt like um, I my only purpose is to please other people um, because my only sense of self was from making my mom laugh um, you know she would by the time I was seven, she was complaining to me about how she wanted to leave my father, and she would break down and cry, and I would have to comfort her. Um, and then there were times like when I should have had somebody protecting me, and she was just standing there, just not doing anything. And not that she never protected me, but um, th- the message to me was, you're on your own, buddy. And this wasn't a conscious message, but it was a feeling that I I need to find love somewhere. And so my best tool at getting affection and attention was making people laugh. So I thought, this is going to save me. <laughs> <laughs> and you're laughing. Why? Because it definitely, it manifestly did not. It validated a part of me. It validated the creative part of me. You know, there's a high in making a room full of people laugh for 45 minutes. Um, but when you get off stage, you still have to face life, having difficult conversations with people. And I didn't know how to do any of those things. And comedy, no amount of comedy can help you in your interpersonal relationships. Most people get into comedy because they struggle with interpersonal relationships and they want to... Um, have the microphone and it's a it definitely helped me get a sense of self but um the most sense of self i've gotten has been from being sober helping where i can doing something for a living that has meaning and purpose to me um and just trying to live um an honest life and i make mistakes all the time but I try to clean them up. I try to apologize where I can. And that has given me the feelings that I thought fame and money were going to come in. It's, I like to joke that um, all the stuff that I've been through, and essentially difficulties that any of us go through, can oftentimes be a long-term gift in ugly wrapping paper. But if we don't get help, we don't get vulnerable, we don't connect to other people we we don't get to open that gift and experience that meaning and purpose um i don't wish the pain on anybody who's gone through something difficult but i wish the tools that they may have to develop to survive that they can then use in traffic at work (laughs) in a relationship you know i had to do all those things to stay alive but now i get to use them everywhere like in traffic i used to somebody cut me off i would follow them um challenge him to a fight tailgate him um nowadays i don't take it personally i just think well that pro that person's probably self-obsessed in a hurry filled with fear i know what that's like god i'm glad i'm not like that anymore and i go from a flash of anger to gratitude you know i wouldn't have developed that tool on my own so that's one of the gifts to me. That's a, I think probably a, a very nice 
place to to leave it before before I let you go though. Let me let's do the plug zone. Let's uh, like uh, pl- just tell everybody where they can find you in in the world. Um, the website for the podcast is mentalpod. Uh, dot com. Uh, the podcast is called The Mental Illness Happy Hour, and you can find it on any of your um, podcast players. Yeah, fill out a survey um, on the website. Those those are such a big part of of the podcast. Um, but yeah, give it a listen. There's some some great episodes um, in there. And, and are you on social media? Oh, yeah. I'm so bad at plugging myself. Um, at Mental Pod on uh, Twitter and Instagram, and Facebook page is Facebook.com/slash Mental Pod. It's important work you're doing. It's uh, I recommend everybody listen. It's really interesting um, and I, I I think quite meaningful. Right back at you, Dan. Thank right you. Right back at you. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.